The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Christy Wilhelmy shares valuable insights for building and maintaining an organic home food garden. Up to 80% of her family's produce comes from less than 300 square feet of her own garden. We discuss her approach to designing gardens while understanding a gardener's specific needs and objectives. Christy explains the importance of selecting appropriate materials and proper choices of soil, seed, and irrigation for a flourishing garden. In addition, she addresses certain common misconceptions and shares the key lessons she's learned in her gardening journey. Christy is the chief garden nerd and founder of the Garden Nerd brand, which is the home of abundant gardening resources. She publishes newsletters, her popular blog, a top-ranked podcast, and YouTube videos. Her specialties are spreading the garden word to her clients and the world with small space organic vegetable garden design, consulting, and classes. Much of Christie's expertise to help you better plan and maintain your garden is captured in the online courses she's developed. She is the author of Gardening for Geeks, 400 Plus Tips for Organic Gardening Success, Growing Your Own Mini Fruit Garden, and her debut novel, Garden Variety, with a sequel on the way. This is episode 149, The Maximum Abundance Plan for Your Mini Garden Space, with Christy Wilhelmy on the Garden Question Podcast. Christy, you have designed and put numerous food gardeners on the right track. How do you begin that process? It always starts with a conversation because I want to know what they're wanting a garden for. Are they wanting to grow food? Are they trying to reduce their grocery bills? Are they just interested in having something to go outside and enjoy? That usually starts the process. Where I work, I'm usually dealing with people who don't have a lot of space to work with. I'm trying to narrow things down to what their priorities are ahead of time so that we're not wasting space, energy, and money on putting in something that they're not excited about. There's various materials that we can use in a food garden. What are some of your choices that you like to use? Yeah, that's a very good question because I have oftentimes wandered into someone's garden where they've just had the work done to put in the hardscaping, raised beds, irrigation, soil, etc. The designer had made the wrong choices. And so I'm usually there to help fix the problem or stop it from happening. I'll consult with them ahead of time and say, okay, here are the materials that are ideal to use. For example, when it comes to raised bed materials, I prefer to use cedar. A lot of people use redwood, but unless you use kiln-dried redwood, you're actually putting more toxins into the soil materials than you might think because redwood takes a long time to dry. It takes a solvent to dry it. 
And those solvents leach into the soil, into your food. If you are going to use redwood, use kiln-dried redwood, which you can usually special order at a contractor's desk at your lumber yard. I use cedar. I like to use 2x12s or 2x6s because they're thicker and they don't warp and bend as much. We stabilize the lumber every two feet so that it doesn't bend or bow under soil because soil moisture, you're watering the beds. And so they're going to tweak over time. I love using three-inch deck screws <laughs> and hold it all together. I'm also optimizing for space because a lot of raised beds are built with those four-by-four four posts in the corners, but I need those extra four inches everywhere, <laughs> so I don't use them. We'll bracket the corners together or use three-inch screws all the way down, stabilizing every two feet. For soil, it really depends on what you have access to. Generally speaking, I don't use fill dirt. I don't use native soil. Vegetables require a lot more specialty soils. Sometimes the bulk soil dealers sell veggie mix or raised bed mix. Even that isn't rich enough for my blood, honestly. <laughs> we exclusively use biodynamic soil if we can. It's more of a potting soil where it has some perlite in it and some coconut coir or peat moss, depending on what it is. It's really loamy. It's not going to compact really easily. It's a good material to use. My clients, what I say is that soil is going to be your biggest expense, but it's going to be your biggest reward. If you start with really good soil, the rewards come for years and years after that. Do spend money on soil. Don't go to Home Depot and buy a $4 bag of potting soil. It's going to look like sawdust and grow like sawdust. Those are like the top things the wood that you're using, the soil that you're putting in the beds. And then for irrigation, most of the time, landscapers like to use half-inch tubing with 12-inch emitters, meaning holes every 12 inches. For vegetable gardens, especially for the kinds of gardens I do where we're growing intensively very close together because we have very little space to work with, I prefer to use quarter-inch tubing with six-inch emitters. The holes are closer together, which means you can plant closer together. The tubing is more malleable because it's thinner. So you can actually pull drip lines away from your tomatoes when they don't need as much water as the peppers next to them. It gives you a lot more flexibility. If you get your soil, your wood, and your irrigation right, you're off to a great start. Let's look at things not to use. And you've mentioned some already, but how about in the beds? What would we want to try to avoid? Native soil is something I generally avoid. Also fill dirt, because a lot of the time the fill dirt has really pernicious weed seeds. Out here in Los Angeles, we have nutsedge, which is predominant in a lot of people's front yards and just all over the place. The roots can run 30 feet, but it's really hard to get rid of once it's in your soil. I would recommend avoiding pressure-treated lumber because while pressure-treated lumber is safer than it used to be, like in landscape timbers, and a lot of people like the look of those 8x8 landscaping timbers because they feel earthbound, they're sturdy, and they look good, but they are pressure-treated. That's going to be another possible toxin leaching into the soil and into your food over time. The landscape timbers of today are far less toxic than they used to be. Avoid railroad ties because those are soaked in creosote. <laughs> we don't want that in our food. Some people bypass the toxicity by lining the beds with plastic, but I would not line my beds with plastic 
to preserve the wood because what inevitably happens is you tear the plastic and then soil and water get trapped between the plastic layer and the lumber, causing more trouble than it's worth. Plastic photodegrades, it doesn't biodegrade. You get little plastic bits in your soil over time. So I prefer not to line the beds and avoid the pressure treated lumber. In our area, we have a predominance of pine as our lumber and Douglas fir also, but they're going to rot over time, sometimes more rapidly than others. I don't know if you have termites, but we do. Yeah, we do. Every contractor out there will tell you that pine or Douglas fir is not the best lumber to work with. My first set of raised beds 30 years ago, I built out of Douglas fir and they lasted 12 years. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, such a surprise. And I thought, okay, that's what we're doing. Yeah, they're going to be termite issues, but I keep mine going as long as possible. Until they're falling apart, <laughs> I will not replace them. I have some rough sawn oak I was thinking about making some beds with. What do you think? That would probably be really good. Oak's hard to come by around here. I don't know that it's readily available in our lumber yards for raised beds anyway. But yeah, I don't know what the price break is. It used to be that it was dug fir, then cedar, and then redwood was the most expensive. But then cedar and redwood swapped places for a while. And I, I don't know where oak falls in on that category. I've never used it for building. Yeah, it'd probably be expensive. I don't know if you have much oaks that can be sawn in your area. Ours are protected. There's an oak disease that's going around killing off the oak trees. I'm not sure what they are allowed to do with the diseased wood. We're dealing with that. My home raised beds here at Gardener headquarters are made out of a composite lumber called Trex decking. When I did my research way back when, it's one of the few composite lumbers that can handle direct soil contact. Most of them have to be on a framework, pressure-treated lumber, and then above soil. There are a couple out there that can have direct soil contact, and the solid timbers from Trex work. My beds, I've had them in since 2008. They hold up pretty well. You'll go through a saw blade or two, cutting it. It's pretty dense. But it lasts and it doesn't splinter, it doesn't fade. It's like the day I put it in. And you fasten those together with screws? Yeah, we do pre-drill to prevent splitting and then put in the three-inch deck screws in the corners overlapping the ends. Mm. It works great. They are, haven't even shown any sign of falling apart. Yeah. What about metal? Do you ever use any metal for beds? I have uh, some, so there are some prefab raised beds out there, like the Vigo Gardens, the corrugated metal beds. I tried to stay away from using those in my hot place climate, you know, like my valley clients who get temperatures in hundreds sometimes. On the coast, it's okay for us to use them, but otherwise they just fry the root systems. I know a lot of people like to use horse troughs, the big watering galvanized troughs, but if it comes down to temperature. Is it going to overheat your soil? Is it going to dry everything out more quickly? Is it going to fry your roots? If you're in a place that gets a lot of summer rains or coastal lower temperatures, more even temperatures, then yeah, go for it. One word though about galvanized metal. <laughs> the coating is zinc. We have a problem with sometimes excessive zinc. Excessive zinc binds up nutrients and does not allow the plant to take them up. So sometimes if you get enough leaking zinc into your plant or your soil, you end up with stunted growth. That's another plus for wood for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't know that about the horse troughs and the zinc leaching. 
Yeah, it can happen. I don't know how severely it can happen. I suppose it's also climate related. If you get a lot of rain or if you're watering a lot, it can wear away over time and start to leach into the soil. You talked about irrigation already. I know water is a precious resource. Are you using drips or sprays in your irrigation? How do you operate your system? We talked a bit about design, so just give us another rundown on that if you don't mind. Sure. It's one of those things where it like, it depends. In my own garden, I have the Cadillac of irrigation systems where each bed runs to a mini valve underground that runs to the main valve that has the clock, the controller on it. I can control each bed individually. But for my clients, we're just hooking all the beds up to one zone. We usually do the drip irrigation with the emitters. But if I know that someone's going to be growing a lot from seed, say root crops, carrots close together, and they need more than those six inch drip holes. I either coach them on hand watering for that germination period, or we swap out or install some extra 90 degrees in the corner of a four by four raised bed. You've got full coverage, two 90 degree micro sprayers, and that gets the surface area wet, which is what seeds require. Most of the time, I'm working with people who are either starting their seeds in trays off-site or inside the house, or they're direct sowing and willing to water those patches that need water every day for 7, 10, 14, 21 days, whatever it is. That makes it easy, I think, just to keep it just the regular drip irrigation and then additional watering when needed for those patches. When we do our irrigation, we'll run a half inch line with no emitters across the top of the bed. And then we'll come six inches in from the edge and run a quarter inch line with six inch emitters perpendicular to that half inch line every foot across. So we're 12 inches apart, six inches in from the edge of the beds. Should cover it then, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it does. I don't like doing the squiggly lines. (laughs) Everyone does this, or a lot of people tend to do tubing without emitters with bubblers on the end. And it's so inconsistent. I really want a nice blanket of even watering all over the garden. And so that's how we do a grid, you know? You ever use ooze hose? You know what that is? No. That's a hose that is porous and you put pressure. Oh, soaker hoses. Yeah, soaker hoses. You, You call them ooze hoses. I have not had good luck with Soaker hoses or ooze hoses, they tend to clog up. But I know some people who swear by them. So if they work for you, go for it. What about building the beds on your site? How do you like to orient them, bringing some disasters? I have been to many homes where the landscaper put in raised beds on the north side of a two-story house, and they only get summer sun for a couple of hours a day with that kind of orientation. Ideally, south-facing garden in as far away from any buildings as possible and trees if you can. For me, I'm lucky enough to have a south-facing garden that I do have a pretty large Brazilian pepper tree in my backyard, but I do what's called like doctor's office furniture where everything is pushed against the walls. Some people call it spin art where you just spin the dial and everything up against the walls. I'm utilizing all of the sunny patches in my yard. And when I do with clients is we try and situate it in the sunniest part of the yard with the most amount of sun that we can get. I don't care as much about whether beds are oriented lengthwise, north to south or east to west. I like to put the longest length 
to the north. So if you want to do trellis growing for your cucumbers and beans, vining crops, pole beans or peas, having as much trellis space as possible, I prefer to do that. So if you have your rectangle with the long side facing north and south, then you have the longest length for a trellis for those crops and then go tallest to shortest from north to south there. I do like to put at least two feet between beds for my slimmer clients and three feet between beds for folks who need help getting up and down or have a larger frame. If you're planning on wheeling something through like a wheelbarrow or a cart, then three to four feet is good for that. So you'll clear all the plant material. It also allows you to plant a whole bunch of stuff in your beds and have it spill over and not be worried about infiltrating the next bed over. Sunshine is important. (laughs) You need a minimum of six hours of sunlight in order to grow things. If it makes a fruit, six to 10, you know, whatever you can get. Sometimes the best place for your garden is in the front yard. There's a whole street that's clearing. There aren't as many obstructions there. Sometimes if you don't have a tree-lined street, you probably have a lot of sun in your front yard. That can be the best place to put it. With my clients who put in a front yard garden, the neighborhood is like, ooh, what are you growing? They all come over and they want their own little patch and it starts to change the neighborhood. I see that all the time. That's a good way to get to know your neighbors too. You mentioned trees and shade, but can trees be a detriment in other ways to your beds? One of the problems we have around here with small space urban gardens is hedges and trees. The roots, especially ficus and privet hedges, find your raised beds after about a year, maybe two years of being in the ground. I have a whole YouTube video on why raised bed production decreases over time. The number one reason is because the tree roots and shrub roots have found your raised beds and they're like, ooh, free source of water and nutrients. Let's go over here. Then suddenly nothing grows and you're like, I'm watering all the time and it doesn't seem to make any difference. You get in there and you dig and you start pulling up these brownish red roots and you break open the root and it's pale white inside. They're coming from the bottom of the bed from underneath. We have to go in and we have a shorthand for this now, me and my crew. We have to do the root barrier. We dig out all the soil. We break off all the roots. We put down a layer of hardware cloth, which is half inch wealth and wire mesh. We put that down and then several layers of landscape fabric that come up the sides a little bit then put the soil back in, reinstall the irrigation. That gives that person another two to five years of growing without any infestation of roots. It makes a huge difference. Back to add on to your previous question about orientation is if you have a hedgerow of privacy hedges or privet or ficus or even eugenia, get at least four feet away from those if you can. (laughs) It'll allow your gardeners to prune it without all the biomass falling into your raised beds. It'll give you a better chance of growing stuff without infestation of roots. Why do you put the hardware cloth in there if you're going to put a root barrier fabric? Yeah, it sounds like a crazy thing. We have dug out inch and a half diameter roots. They were pushing up into the raised bed. So the hardware cloth acts as a physical barrier to keep the roots from anchoring on and coming up into the bed. The fabric keep the finer, more fibrous roots out. We're all starting to think about spring. What are you doing to get ready for spring? What am I doing to get ready for spring? I should be starting my tomato seeds right now indoors. I have a set of grow lights and I like to grow my tomatoes from seed. 
If you're like me, they might have maybe 40 or 45 different tomato seed packets to choose from. (laughs) And there's only room in my garden for eight in one bed and eight in my community garden plots. I have room for 16 tomatoes total and it's this process of having to choose the favorite child. So that's one thing. Starting seeds, back it out six to eight weeks from your last frost date is, which we don't have one, but we start to plant our tomatoes at the end of March. Bed prep, as soon as your soil is workable and drained well enough is good. For me, I've been growing all winter long. I'm in zone 10B and we have no frost to speak of. So we're growing through the winter just recently turned over my cover crops because about a third of the flowers had opened. I grow a cover crop to prepare the bed where my tomatoes are going to go the next year. That's what I just did. By the time March comes, that bed will be ready for planting. We have a bit of a rat infestation all the time around here. There's always construction in my neighborhood, always houses being torn down and rebuilt because it's California and the culture is newness. When the houses get torn down. These houses that were here since the 1940s, they get torn down. All the rats decide, oh, let's go find the garden (laughs) and live there. I hear it's sweet over there on Westminster Avenue. So we're setting traps and just getting things ready. I recommend now is a good time to start planning your garden on paper. I actually have an online course that I would love to share with you when you're ready. I know a lot of people who take their irrigation away for the winter it's time to maybe start bringing it back out, checking it for chew marks from squirrels or rats, just getting your tools sharp and ready for the season. That's all fun to do. Do you believe in till or no till? I'm in the no till, except for when the roots are infesting my beds. I switched to no till many years ago, and I find that the garden is pretty happy that way. Or I do what's called broad forking, where you can take a digging fork or a broad fork, stick it in the ground, just rock it back. Basically, you're just lifting the soil, letting it settle back down right where it is. You're not breaking up the soil structure. You're not tearing apart the soil food web that's underground. It's minimal disturbance. For me, it'll snap off some of those infesting roots that have come in. It'll aerate compacted soil well enough. It makes it ready to reoxygenate the soil and makes it a happier growing environment for new microbes to start breeding. I'm no-till as much as I can be. Yeah. It seems like soils in a bed are always shrinking. Yeah. How do you compensate for that in the no-till? One of the things that's interesting about my recommendation for biodynamic soil in the beginning really is a difference in how much your soil settles. If you go get a cheap bag of soil, most of it is undecomposed or partially decomposed biomass. And it's going to continue breaking down in your soil and you're going to end up with a lot of soil settling. Some of that's compaction, but a lot of it is just biomass degrading. If you're using a really high quality soil, you're going to lose less soil over time. When we prep beds for the new season, we add about a half inch to an inch of compost on the top. I do what I call egg beaters, where you take your clawed hands and just rotate them to scratch that compost and any fertilizer that you put down into the top three to four inches of soil. Then you water it in and gravity's going to do the rest to distribute. The microbial life will come in and integrate the rest of that compost down. I think the one exception is if you've got a new bed that is very clay 
that's when I go to good old John Jevons Grow Biointensive and training method for doing double digging, which is backbreaking work. You're digging a trench, moving soil that's 12 inches deep, and you're loosening the soil in the front and then the next trench and filling that empty trench with the soil from the previous. It's a lot of work, but it aerates the soil and you can incorporate compost down to a depth of 12 inches. I've done a cheat where I've done a single dig 12 inches deep, and then I've put a 12 inch raised bed on top of it (laughs) and then filled it with soil. So you get that 24 inches of loose, loamy, friable soil without having to dig 24 inches deep. Please explain biodynamic soil. Ah. Biodynamic's not a brand name, right? It's a... Correct. It's a very active critters in the soil, basically. That's right. Yeah, it's a very biologically active soil. Biodynamics is a technique or a philosophy that centers around gardening, but it, it also extends to other things. It's kind of how permaculture does too. It's not just about gardening. It's used as a set of design principles. Biodynamic soil is usually integrated with these preparations. The way I think of it and explain it to students and and clients is think of yogurt. You take a starter, you take some kind of bacteria and you add it to hot milk. Then it ferments and starts to coagulate. It breeds the, the bacteria so you end up with yogurt. Biodynamics is the same thing, only they're making these preparations that are fermented and then they inoculate the piles of compost with these fermented preparations. And that helps breed more microbial life in the soil. They're usually using only dairy cow manure and alfalfa and these preparations. So for those who are concerned about what's in your soil, then you can go with that. But it's not cheap. It's the thing you'll spend the most money on, but it'll be worth it. Okay. You talked about the rats come into your garden. Are there any other critters that didn't get an invitation that are showing up? (laughs) So we have possums. I have to go to my community garden for this because we are overrun with all kinds of things. We have rabbits, we have gophers, we have rats, we have owl boxes that hopefully create a home for owls who come and capture those things. We have a hawk perch or two to give the hawks somewhere to observe. And occasionally I'll find that ecosystem is really helping. We have a cat and she eats rats whole. So I try to tell all my neighbors not to use poison because that's not what uh, owls, crows, or hawks want. It's not what cats want. A good barn cat will go a long way. The biggest problem outside of pests and insect issues is having to use physical barriers to keep the rats and rabbits from chewing everything down to little nubbins. I don't guess you have deer, do you? No, we don't have deer. We do have coyotes, but they're not after the vegetables. We do have opossums too. They'll uproot your plant to find the grubs in the soil. But they also eat ticks and snails and slug eggs, so we welcome them in our garden. All right. What about armadillos? Do you have those? No. Do you have armadillos where you live? We do. They've invaded. They've become a big problem for us over the last few years. And skunks are a real problem, but we have not dealt with that. What do you do for those? We don't really have many skunks here. Further north, they do. For the armadillos, there's not really a good solution. Cars are a good solution for armadillos, and the buzzards were having a great meal when I got the mail today. Wow. Are there traps? 
Traps, yes. You can set up some boards and funnel them in to the trap. I don't think there's anything that you bait it with. And I don't know where you start the funnel. I've got one client who's just so irritated at them. He doesn't know what to do. For the gophers, which are our biggest issue, um, my community garden. My community garden is the second largest in Southern California. It's seven acres and it's 500 plots. And we're on the slope and above us is a bunch of little league baseball fields. You can imagine the gophers live up there and then they come down to the snack bar for (laughs) a meal and then they go back up. So I'm trying out this thing called the gopher hawk. It's a plunger basically that has a little claw in the end and you set the trap in a gopher hole. If you find the tunnel, you set the trap and then it triggers and you've speared a gopher underground. If you trap a gopher or kill it, put the body down the hole because it sends a message to everyone else. Gophers are solitary. They either live in a small family or isolated by themselves. So it takes a while before a new one will move in. So that body decomposing will help keep them away for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've heard of that for uh, moles, but it doesn't seem to be that effective for moles around here. But yeah, they may have a different behavior. Maybe they're not quite as territorial as gophers are. How do you like to take the guesswork out of gardening? Yeah, I think There are a number of ways. And um, I'm somebody who plans ahead. I sit down every season, a couple of months ahead of time before I need to start seeds. And I plan out what's going to go where for the entire season on paper. I can get as detailed as I want, but to get down to the detail of like, how many plants do I need for this much square footage over here? And which varieties am I going to plant? Like I said about tomatoes, going through and picking which 16 tomato varieties I'm going to grow. You use that design, that map to start indoors and then implement over time as the space becomes available in the garden. I also use that map to go through the end of the season and make notes like what varieties did well, what varieties did not do well, did the rats eat this? Is this something I want to grow again? Were the yields good enough? Because I have gardener's amnesia where you forget from season to season which things you did that worked. I will repeat that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and expecting different results. If I don't write it down, I'm not going to remember. Maybe when I was in my 20s, that was not something I needed to write down, but now (laughs) I definitely (laughs) do. That is my first step to having a garden that works. I guess you plot out your succession planning. come back with your next planting? Yeah. With small space gardens, you're mostly planting all of it at once, but there are certain things like radishes are done in 30 days. So I'll make a note on my map that says radishes, then whatever else I feel like planting after that. Sometimes like with cilantro and broccoli, right? So the things that kind of happen all at once or bush beans, if you want to break them up, I'll plan a couple square feet week one another couple square feet week three, another couple square feet week five. And that way you're staggering your harvest. Another way to stagger your harvest is to grow varieties that have different days to maturity rates. I tend to just go with the eye candy. Oh, that's pretty. I want to eat that. And I don't really pay attention to days to maturity because here in California, we have a very long growing season. We get what we get and it's a long growing season. (laughs) That's just how it is. You have a course about this, don't you? Yes, I do. I have a course launching at the end of March. It's called Plan Your Abundant Edible Garden. And it is all about 
the actual process that I use for myself and for my clients and my students to plan out your garden on paper. And I specialize in small space biointensive gardening. I've come up with 30 years of tricks of how to get the most out of a growing space. If you're trying to cram a whole bunch of stuff into a small space garden, I've got a lot of tips that are going into this online course. If you go to gardennerd.com and click on the little search icon and search garden planning, there's a waiting list to get on. I've built it. I've shot it. I've edited it. It's all uploaded onto Teachable, which is the platform that we use for our online courses. It's going to be launching in late February and we are opening registration very soon. I'm excited about it. It's five modules chock full of information and step-by-step processes for how to plan your garden on paper. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll put a link on that on the episode page for you. If you missed the window, you can also go to learning.gardennerd.com and you'll see all the online courses that we offer. Are these going to be live classes or are they pre-recorded? They're pre-recorded. I'm trying to split myself into many people. The idea of being able to be there for a whole bunch more people than just the number of people who fit at my dining room table makes a lot of sense. This way, people can learn at their own pace and re-watch the videos over and over again every season. They'll have lifetime access. Right. Yeah. That's exciting. I'm excited. (laughs) (laughs) I've worked on it a long time. (laughs) You've worked on this course a long time. When did you find time to write three books? 2020 was a crazy year. We had the pandemic, lockdown, and honestly, if it hadn't happened, I wouldn't have been able to write two books at once. I ended up getting two book contracts back to back in 2020. And so I was toggling three weeks on each book and then sending it off to the editor, my agent. I've got two gardening books. Gardening for Geeks is for growing vegetables in small spaces and Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden is for growing fruits in small spaces. My novel is Garden Variety, which is set in a community garden in Los Angeles. I've written the sequel to that novel and it's with my editor right now. So I'm looking forward to having that come back soon. And then I have to do some work on it and get it ready for publishing. Great. That book is Garden Variety. That's a novel. Give us a little hint of what's going on. What are appetite? Make us want to read it. Sure. So it's set in a community garden in Los Angeles, and it's an eclectic group of people of different stripes who are trying to get along in tight spaces. There's a bit of a love story in the first one. There are life lessons co-mingled with gardening lessons. I peppered vegetable gardening learning experiences all throughout the book. You'll learn a lot about gardening as you read it. It's a fun read. When it first came out, I was hearing from people that it was the book that got them through the rest of winter until last frost. It's a fun read for that. It's a great Valentine's Day gift or birthday gift. And I'm really excited because the first book is a rom-com. The second book has a murder in it. And if I get to the third book, it's going to have a fantasy element to it. I'm writing cross genre with the same cast of characters and the same setting. Everything's centering around gardening. Oh, wow. Excellent. Look forward to that. It's fun. <laughs> I just added garden nerd to my dictionary when I was <laughs> preparing for this. So you created the garden nerd brand. Are you the chief garden nerd? I am. My business card actually says chicken charge, which my mother saw and she was like, you should change that. It's not very professional. I'm like, oh no, that stays <laughs> for sure. 
I was asleep and bolt straight up in bed and the word garden nerd came out of my mouth and I was like, that's the name of my business at my community garden. My next door neighbor was a trademark lawyer and he's go buy the domain name and trademark that right now. (laughs) So I did. I am the product of nerds. My dad's an engineer. My mother's a nurse and nerds beget nerds. So that's what happens. (laughs) Tell us about all the different aspects of garden nerd. Sure. Garden Nerd has a lot of wings. So there's the online free resource of blog, YouTube channel, and podcast. Uh, I've been doing the podcast since 2007. I know, Craig, you and I are in a podcasting group together. So that's how we (laughs) met. I have many videos on my YouTube channel. We've got over 42,000 subscribers. and, And the blog has more than a thousand entries. And anytime you're looking up anything, you could go to Garden Nerd and find information on how to do it. That's the media part. Then I also do consulting, vegetable garden design and installations. I teach classes, I do lectures, and then I'm the author part. We also have a maintenance division. Vegetable gardening is such a specific skill set. I have a team of people who help take care of people's vegetable gardens here in LA, which wasn't the thing I wanted to do because my whole point of teaching people how to grow food is so they can do it themselves. Self-reliance, independence, etc. But it seemed to be where the money was going, so I started doing that. We have about 45 clients. I know it's weird. We have about 45 clients that we help take care of their gardens. Those folks range anywhere from people who are hands-on and sending their kids out to help learn when we're there to completely hands-off and just want a basket of produce show up at their door every week. We're here for that. That's pretty much everything that Garden Nerd is about that I can think of. (laughs) So you're actually picking and putting at their door? Yeah, for some of our clients. They leave out a basket, we harvest, we put it at the door in a shady spot, and they bring it in and wash it up and all that stuff. (laughs) I know. I know. It's so crazy to me. It's not my ideal world, but the thing that keeps Garden Nerd afloat. Got to do what you got to do. Got to do what you got to (laughs) do. That's not a bad thing to do though, either. No. And everyone who works for me really enjoys the job. It's like you get to go 10 gardens. Fun. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, and growing a garden? We've talked about that a little bit and that don't put it on the north side of your garden, of your house in the dog run. I've had a number of people walk me around at the dog run. They're like, this is where we think the garden should go. And I was just thinking that is the worst possible idea, but I know space is limited. I walk into a lot of fancy homes with lots of lawn. Here in Los Angeles and in California in general, we are trying to not have very much lawn because that is a waste of water. My feeling is if it doesn't grow food, don't water it. But that's not true. If it doesn't provide like habitat, pollen and nectar or grow food, it's not worth the water. If you live in a place where you get plenty of water, have all the lawn you want. But when I see people with these sweeping lawns and they walk me around to the dog run, (laughs) I really want to use that sunny space. I wish they would make it functional first. If a garden isn't functional where you can get in there and actually use it, you're not going to use it. So I've seen beds that are too big. I like to keep them small. If you think about Mel Bartholomew, square foot gardening, he basically says a four by four bed is perfect because you can reach two feet in on all the sides and not have to step into the bed. So I 
would prefer the people not make their beds wider than four feet. You can make them longer, but not wider. If you're up against a wall or building or anything like that, three feet. Keep it narrow. For kids, two feet. Perfect size for little arms to get in there because you're going to use it better. And that's another thing I wish people would do differently is just keep growing stuff. Don't give up after one failed attempt. Gardening is all about failure (laughs) and, (laughs) and learning from our mistakes. I'm known for saying, learn to embrace failure and then you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. The best gardeners are the best failures. So true. What garden myth would you like to smash? There's this thing called companion planting, and it's mostly hooey, for lack of a better way of saying it. I wish I could find the resource where I had discovered this, but long ago, somebody, some man just wrote a bunch of stuff down, and everyone took it as gospel after that, and he was basically making it up. I encourage people to look into science-based companion planting. If you're not familiar with Cool Springs Press, my editor from Cool Springs Press, who published Grow Your Own Mini Fruit Garden, her name is Jessica Walliser, and she's actually a book author herself. And she wrote a book called Plant Partners, Science-Based Companion Planting. I encourage people to go in that direction and Forget about everything you've heard. You don't need to plant your basil and tomatoes together. There's really only a few things that actually are true, and that's fennel hates everything, and keep your legume family away from your allium family. That's pretty much all you need to know. (laughs) Yeah, I interviewed Jessica in episode 110, Companion Planting for Success. What's your earliest garden memory? My earliest garden memory is, as a kid, My parents cultivated a spot of land in our backyard. I was a very picky eater. I would not eat any cooked vegetable, but I would eat them raw. My mother grew carrots and peas, and I remember pulling those off the plants and eating them. She was thrilled because she was worried that I wasn't going to eat anything. So peas and carrots from the garden as a kid. Did you help grow them? I think I, you know, would water them every once in a while. Mm -hmm. You know how kids water? I think I might have been one of those. I have no memory of interacting with the garden except to harvest. That's the best part. It's the reward. Why'd you decide to pursue the gardening profession? I fell into it, honestly. I was a dancer and an actress, and I did a little modeling, and I was doing gardening for fun. And people started saying, you should do this for a living. Acting and dance were not working out. I tore all the ligaments in my right ankle, and that took Mm. me out of dance. So I left my day job and started doing Garden Nerd, and it took over my life. (laughs) Here we are. (laughs) Tell us a funny garden story. There are many, but the one that comes to mind is during the time I was, I can keep going back to my community garden, which give you an idea of what's going on in garden variety. I was a phase rep in charge of a group of about 25 people, 25 plots for a period of 18 years. But the funniest is that one day I was looking down at two neighbors who have plots next to each other. One of them was this elderly Polish gentleman who really let his garden do whatever it wanted to do. Next to him was a completely OCD, maniacal, tedious gardener. I happened to hear shouting and I looked down 
One of them is dumping a handful of weeds on top of the other person's head. <laughs> and I had to like storm down there and stop them. And I'm like, it's a garden, you guys, come on. <laughs> so that's, that kind of thing happens all the time in my world. I don't know. That's my funny story. Yeah, I see where you have a lot of ideas for your books now. Yeah, that's fodder for story. I'll tell you that. <laughs> in your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? I have so many. I think John Jevons is one of my heroes because he took the concepts of Grow Biointensive, his system. He took the work of Alan Chadwick and Biodynamics and French Intensive Gardening and put it together into this workable system that's actually helping people all over the world. They have been training individuals, bringing the Grow Biointensive method to more than 150 countries. It's really about growing food when you have nothing, like no resources, how to get your soil working, how to grow from seed, how to make stuff out of nothing, create commerce and economy for yourself and income. It's the kind of stuff that's going to save the world. And so I admire him for that work. What is your most valuable garden mistake? My most valuable garden mistake has to be this moment I realized not to water potatoes after the foliage dies back. And what I did was I kept watering because I thought, oh, it's dying back. I should keep watering this to get new growth. But what instead happened is that I ended up with an entire four by four raised bed of putrid, worm-laden, rotting, disgusting, garbage-smelling potatoes. <laughs> what have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? I feel like I'm always learning. Right now, I'm reading a book called The Seed Detective by Adam Alexander, and it's about his adventures of traveling to different countries and seeking the sources of seeds, like the pregenitors of legumes and corn and various seed varieties that we grow all the time. I'm learning about the origins of all of the food that we take for granted. This really goes even deeper and it's really fascinating. I encourage anyone to read it if you've got the time. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. In my garden, I have so much arugula growing. It's a volunteer all over my yard. You could make a salad for an army right now. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Everybody come eat salad at your house. Tell us about your garden. <laughs> sure. In my home garden, I have eight raised beds. There, four of them are two by fours and they have perennial edibles in them. So like strawberries. I had asparagus for a time. I've got something called tree kale, which is fun. It's a perennial kale that I like to grow. I'm also a huge kale nerd. I grow 16 varieties of kale every year. I've got a whole salad garden with mustard greens arugula, not deliberately planted. Then I have a raised bed with root vegetables, carrots, parsnips, turnips, and radishes. Then I have a container garden with a lot of herbs, some fruit trees, and a Vigo garden with my potatoes growing in them. We also have fruit trees out front. Instead of that front lawn, we opted to put our fruit trees in a mini orchard outside in front. So we've got citrus, because it's California, got orange, tangerine, and lemon. 
then a pomegranate tree out front. Here in the back, we have a loquat, an apple tree, a seed-grown mystery stone fruit that I'm still waiting to see if it's going to be any good or if I need to pull it out, a couple of other citrus trees, and dragon fruit up a trellis. Yeah, zone 10. Zone 10, I know. (laughs) Exotic fruit. My first fruit-growing book I bought. And it wasn't until I read the back pages where they put exotic fruit, and that's where everything I can grow is listed. I realized that the book was for British people. Uh, It was for Great Britain. I was like, okay, that's not us for sure. What did your garden teach you this last year that you're going to apply this next year? (sighs) I feel like I'm always learning from the garden. And what I've been learning lately is to do less. I'm able to get to less and less every year, it seems, with this garden. I'm letting it go nuts. It's teaching me that the less I do, the more abundant it is. We have in the pathways and mulched areas, stinging nettles that come back every year, nasturtiums, borage, arugula, cilantro, New Zealand spinach. I'm just looking around. And then a whole bunch of flowers that come up. The less I try to be tidy and organized, the more lush, beautiful, amazing, and vibrant my garden is. I'm doing less. What are your future plans for your garden? Every year, I think I'm going to do something and I make a plan. I'd really like to learn how to do, to get more comfortable with grafting. That is something I have shied away from all of these years, but I would really like to try my hand at grafting some other varieties onto my apple tree or cut down this weird seed grown thing and graft something I might like to grow on the stone fruit. It'd be fun to do. Yeah. What plant are you in love with this week? I'm always in love with kale. I grow 16 varieties of kale. And I think my favorite of my kales, it's again, hard to choose. I'm a big fan of Siberian kale. It's one you don't usually see in the market because there's the Lachinato, the dinosaur type, there's the curly kale, and then there's a a red Russian. Hmm. But Siberian is a cross between the curly kale and a red Russian type. It's tender and not as chewy or tough as some of the other, if you've ever felt kale's too hard to chew. Try Siberian kale. It's really great. There's true Siberian, dwarf Siberian, Hanover kale. They have different names and they're delightful. And there are some beautiful purple kales too that are fun to grow. Any final thoughts, anything to wrap up with? If you're interested in learning more, go to gardennerd.com. I have another online course called Creating a Healthy Garden that's all about pest control and finding the right solution for your pests in your garden. Christy, tell us how people may connect with you. Sure, you can find me at gardennerd.com. That's G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R-D.com. Only one N in Garden Nerd. We're also on Instagram, X, and TikTok as gardennerd1, on Facebook as gardennerd.com, and you can find our Garden Nerd YouTube channel on YouTube. This has been episode 149, The Maximum Abundance Plan for your mini garden space with Christy Wilhelming on the Garden Questing Podcast. Thank you, Christy. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Questing Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. 
You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.